Welcome to One and Done TV. I am the first one of your co-hosts, Ian Hamilton. And I am the second ordinary co-host, John Polking. And this is the Extraordinary Podcast, (laughs) where we review television shows that were canceled after one season. Thanks for giving us that extra little boost. That's nice. That makes me feel better about what we're doing. John, for anyone that it's their first time, what do you think they should know about this podcast? I think all they need to know is that we do the merengue onto the graves of these shows. We look at what they did, what they left behind, and ultimately what made them one and done. Today, we have the extraordinary privilege to talk about Ordinary Joe, one of the first of our 2022 cancellation series shows yeah our month of what's uh, another thing that starts with m uh mangled. we could call this our, our mangled, mangled month, month. <laughs> yeah this is the first of probably four that we're gonna do so a little bit of context for everybody this spring season of cancellations in cable and network was pretty much at a historic high. I've seen numbers online as high as 109 TV shows were canceled. Uh, And I will specify so that John doesn't glare at me over (laughs) Zoom that I'm not talking 109 one and dones. Just overall, that's how many shows have been canceled. Between streaming, the business model for TV is changing. And anyone that hasn't cut their cord already... I don't know why you haven't, but that's why all these shows and all these businesses are fledgling. And it's just times they are a changing in the TV business, John. Yeah, they are playing taps on those uh, TV trumpets a lot recently. I don't really, I mean, this is a bigger conversation for sure. We don't need to have it right now, but the appeal Uh, of broadcast TV is dwindling significant less less and less i agree it's um the one thing that it has over streaming i think is that some dramas that are made for cable or network they still have to write to the commercial breaks mm-hmm. so there's a little bit more drama in the middle sometimes yeah. that keeps you coming back for more whereas my complaint for some uh, like Netflix shows, like Bloodline, everybody. God. Three seasons, <laughs> Kyle Chandler, what are you doing, people? It was a great show. I really enjoyed it, but it would start really hard and it would end really hard. And in the middle, it would just sag. And some shows could use commercial breaks to write to, to amp up some of that drama in the middle, you know? Structure does inspire some of like the greatest creativity. I do think that. I think that excess leads to a lot of things that should be left on the cutting room floor. Uh, Absolutely. But, but sometimes excess can lead to some wonderful things. Uh, can we talk about what we watched? Because I just saw Elvis. Oh, I have not seen it yet. Baz Luhrmann's biopic of 
Mr. Presley. Well, you are smiling with your eyes. I had a blast. As a historical document, it is nonsense. As a movie, (laughs) it was sparkly. And for two hours and 40 minutes, it flew by for me. The lead performance by Austin Butler. Chef's kiss. He did a great job Mm -hmm. at not just doing an impression. Uh, Tom Hanks, no idea what he was doing. Absolute nonsense. (laughs) It was... It was like when I tried to play like German or Dutch characters if I'm doing an improv scene, like with no nuance. Then I'm just talking like this, and there's nothing to it. But I'm going to be an evil conniving character. It's it was it was basically that in in a fat suit, and I really don't know why he wanted to do this, but I'm glad he did. Lots of great music. The only thing I know about that is that he did not know how large the man was in real life when he took the part <laughs> oh boy he was so in for he a rude real... awakening right especially you know actors usually if they find out they're gonna have to sit in a makeup chair for three to six hours a day they just big time people will just turn the part down mm-hmm. and i'm gonna make a bold statement right here though Boz lerman's best movie i think so wow i enjoyed it more than moulin rouge more than australia more than The Great Gatsby. I don't really know anyone that likes Great Gatsby. A lot of what he does is very big and loud, but also kind of forgettable, I think. But this like actually stuck with me. And it's been a whole two days since I saw it. So you know it's good. Do you think they'll turn this into a Broadway musical the way they turned Moulin Rouge into a Broadway musical? Well, they already did All Shook Up, which was the... No, the, but I, the Mamma Mia version of uh, Elvis music. <laughs> I want Boz Lerman's Elvis on stage. Somehow I, translate that whack directing to a <laughs> t- to live performance. Uh, does whack have an H on that? Yes. Good. What have you been watching? It's on Discovery Plus, and it's called "I Almost Got Away with It," and it's just <laughs> one of those you know cheesy crime shows. But the crazy thing is that it's a show about how they usually interview the actual person and they intercut these, you know, horrible dramatic reenactments of somebody that commits a very serious crime and then is usually on the run for a couple years or a couple months. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they splice in interviews with the actual person now and people that were affected by it and stuff. And it's it's clearly made pretty cheaply, but what really blows my mind about it is that they're interviewing some people that have done, like, really, really bad stuff. Like, really, we're not just talking about run-of-the-mill murder here. Like, we're talking about multiple murders and assaults without, you know, seeming to have much of a conscience about it. Or at least... You know, maybe now they do 20 years later, but the idea that we're giving these people any screen time is a a little disturbing to me, but not disturbing enough that I I haven't I've been falling asleep to this show. I don't know why. Isn't that the tagline for Discovery Plus, though? You know, we shouldn't be giving these people screen time, but eat it up, piggies, oink, oink. Oh, absolutely. And now I, s- I think that you little piggies should eat it up. Because it's, it's showtime. showtime. <laughs> Five, four, three, 
In September of 2021, Joe Kimbrough was given three choices. Unfortunately, that didn't triple his chances of being kept on the air as this one was canceled after 13 episodes. Ian, today we are talking about Ordinary Joe. This is going to be a lot to unpack because normally when we have a show, we have one plot. But this show, we have three because of the unique format of this show. Well, actually, in a normal show, you usually have an A, B, and C plot, John. But in this case, we have three storylines per episode, each with their own A, B, and C plots. So everything is moving fast and furious. We're going down to I when it comes to plots. Hell, maybe even P. I is the ninth letter of the alphabet, right? Uh, I should know that because it's the first letter of my name. <laughs> I think because J, J is the first letter of mine. So, and I think I'm 10. So I think I is nine. Now, so I now I'm doing the alphabet in the head and I'm like <laughs> in my head and I'm like struggling. This is what we do during our free time. We just do the alphabet forwards and backwards, sideways, slantways. So Ordinary Joe follows a man, Joe Kimbrough. He makes a decision after his college graduation. He is either going to talk to his on-again, off-again girlfriend, Jenny. He is going to chase after a girl that he just met, Amy, or he's going to go to lunch with his family. Each of those choices leads him onto a different timeline. We'll, we'll break down those timelines in a little bit, but that is the general sliding doors sort of. Well, I guess, Ian, do you know the sliding doors story format? What are you talking about? So there's this movie from the mid-90s with Gwyneth Paltrow called Sliding Doors. She's a woman who lives in London, and at the beginning of the movie, she is supposed to get onto a train. In one timeline, she gets on that train. In one timeline, the train doors slam before she gets on that. And that affects, that ripples out and affects basically her entire life from there on out. It, it affects who she meets. It affects the path of her career. It affects the relationship she has with friends. And since then, there haven't been too many sort of uses of that sort of plot device. The only other one I can think of is an original musical with Adina Menzel called If Then uh, that used a similar thing. You know, you make one choice, your life turns one way. You make another. Uh, butterfly Effect, Ashton Kutcher. Yeah, duh. but that's not how the the story is shaped, though. I, I've never seen it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. There's something with a butterfly, and he's got he reads letters, it's, and he it's time a psychological travels. thriller. I think <laughs> this is very much not a psychological thriller. It is a schmaltzy melodrama, and I say that with a love for the genre, right? And Joe, even though he diverges into these three different paths, and we get to see the different Joe on each timeline: Nurse Joe, Cop Joe. I called him Music Joe in my notes, but you called him Rock Joe in your notes, he's which I thought rock. was interesting. I don't know about that as much. He's, yeah, okay. I don't know. Ed it Sheeran? Is, it is technically rock? music. I would say closer to like Dave Matthews. I guess I don't know enough about Ed Sheeran. It's not, uh, it's not Ed Sheeran. Ed Sheeran's very poppy. His rock persona is very acoustic and sort of like the countryside of rock without totally the country 
Yeah. And he also, Joe like wears a bandana around his head. You know, he's one of those. He never um, wears a bandana. He does in the last episode. Does he? Oh, yeah, it's man, a red bandana, it. and the kid is shredding his guitar solo, and Joe falls off the stage while wearing a red bandana, John. But we'll get there later. <laughs> uh, my point was that even though he divulges into these three different paths, what's interesting about the show is that he still ends up being involved in the lives of some people that otherwise you'd think he would have no connection to. And that is kind of what's different to me about, I haven't seen the movie Sliding Door, but I could see how you make one decision, you go down completely different paths, you know, completely different people, you move to different cities, whatever. But he, for the most part, be it fate or the fact that he's a homebody, ends up interacting with the same group of people in different ways. Yeah because of the ways that they have split apart, because of the ways they've come back together, they've had experiences outside of each other because of this one decision. The way that it all kind of comes together leaves a lot of mystery, which I think is very emblematic of the show that NBC wanted this to be. I th- mm. Watching this, it really seemed like they wanted this to be the next This Is Us. I have never seen This Is Us, and I thought the same thing. (laughs) It plays into the same sort of melodramatic tropes about family, about choice, about love, and it kind of jumps back and forth between timelines as well, which also then creates mysteries about why things worked out a certain way and how who was responsible for what and how right or they want to know something later that we find out the answer to in a flashback or or a flash forward. And that's the sort of thing that it's going for. But do you mind if I dive into the history of the show itself for a second? Yeah, because I thought this was really interesting. So the show is created by Matt Reeves. Right. It's it's actually a prequel to The Batman. Yes, it is. Uh, We (laughs) Except it's a little bit better lit. Than the uh, Batman. Yeah, okay. A lot more blue and green, too. A lot more blue, a lot more green, a lot more red. But I don't Matt... know if there's more red. Oh, that's true. There is a lot of red in the Batman. Okay, there you go. I'll, I'll, I'll give you that one. I'll give you, I'll give you that one. And for those that don't know, Matt Reeves directed the Batman. Uh, before that, he directed uh, the most recent trilogy of Planet of the Apes movies. Before that, he directed Cloverfield. Wait, he directed all three of those? I think all three. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. At least two of them, I think. Mm. But he his big break was Cloverfield. And this is where I think it got interesting because Cloverfield came out around the same time as the original Ordinary Joe script was written. Ooh. So for some context, Matt Reeves, he co-created Felicity with J.J. Abrams. That was his first sort of big thing. And then he wrote this script about choice, about family, about love, all this stuff to be his next show. J.J. Abrams, around the same time, was like, hey, I've got this project, which ended up being Cloverfield. You could, you should do that. And so Matt Reeves left this script back in 2006 to then start his film career, which, of wow. course, then became really lucrative and good for him. And he's gotten a lot of prestige and some cool opportunities. But then, you know, 14, 15 years later, 
he revisits it and he brought on these two other writers to run the show, Russell Friend and Garrett Lerner, who've worked on a few other network shows, House and Roswell. And the show ended up getting picked up in the tw- for pilot in the 2020 to 2021 season, got picked up to series in March of 2021. And then sure enough, did you see in the credits how everything was credited, though? I was thinking was, about that. Yeah, it was in order. It goes based on an I or based on the idea? format of based on the format of which was based, one of the weirdest writing credits I've ever seen. I have never seen that before because it goes based on the format by some guy. Then it goes developed by the two guys you just said created by Matt Reeves. Reeves. Mm -hmm. And I thought, so I'm surprised to hear that he wrote that script because I assumed it was like someone else pitched it, maybe wrote a bad script, but the, but the studio had bought it and then they gave it to some other people who, you know, sort of had some ideas. They got Matt Reeves behind it and he was kind of the bigger name while the other two like show ran it, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's surprising to me. It had a lot more history to it. And I thought that was really interesting. And sure enough, it's the choices that you make. He could have tried to make this script work. I think it was with ABC originally, but they now it's on NBC or it was on NBC. And it kind of became this whole, I'll kind of, there was one key difference between his original script and what the show ended up being that I think is really critical, but I'll get to that in a second. Oh. Before we sort of dive into the plot, I do want to lay the groundwork for some of the main characters. Uh, Joe becomes three different people. He's the main fixture of the show, played by James Wolk, who you know, Bob, Bob Benson. Bob Benson from Man Men. And also another one-and-done show, which was... Crazy people, the crazy ones, the which crazy was Robin ones. Robin yes. Williams's last show with Sarah Michelle Geller too. Yeah. Yes. Oh, he was the yeah. third lead in that. I totally forgot about that. Oh, it, oh, and that show was not good. No, it was bad. Uh, we no. watched the first few episodes of that. Oh boy. We did. Did we do that show yeah. last when we did the show the first time? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then uh, he was also in the new Watchmen on HBO. Yeah. Which was a very different type of character. For him to play, which was interesting. But to me, John, let's all be honest. He's just the soft man's Kyle Chandler. (laughs) I fully agree with that. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 100%. He he is the guy, though. He's got the same sort of quality of Kyle Chandler. Like, he's looked 35 for the last 20 years. Totally. I, I didn't look up how old he was, but... He starts off the show supposedly being 22, which basically means they kind of let his hair flop down for a little bit. Yeah, they had to do play a lot with uh, haircuts and beards between different characters, depending on their ages or timelines, yeah. which I, I think they did a pretty good job. But it I don't know. Sometimes it's a little confusing. Whatever. Yeah. And it does help one of the big sort of things that they do to differentiate the three different timelines is the way it's shot with the, they use three different colors. Essentially there is nurse Joe, which always has this sort of green tint on it. 
Oh, it's not sort of green tint. It's very mint green tint yeah. all over the walls, the clothing, everything. It's like if a Lucky Charms commercial was directed by David Simon. <laughs> uh, I don't know if I'm going to give this show David Simon credit just yet. <laughs> uh, but then, right, the the where he pl- is a cop, everything is bluer. And then when he's Rock Joe, I guess the color's red, but actually they don't um they don't do that as hard. They, they work that the more into the hard. production design than they do the way it's actually shot. I completely agree. Mm-hmm. But it is still very red and very distinct. And in each of the timelines, he is joined by in various ways by Jenny, who is played by Elizabeth Lale, who had done the first season of the show You. I never watched that. But oh, at one time, okay, so You was really big, right? For like two years? Yeah, and I think still a little bit into its third season. She was, I never watched the show, but she played Guinevere Beck, but she oh, was mostly man. the first season. I was at season. a party where I was talking to this blonde girl for a while, and then it turned out she was like one of the stars of You. <laughs> and she was like, at that point, I was talking to her, was like, number two or something in the IMDB rankings. It uh, could have been, you, you could have been talking to Elizabeth Lale. Cause it man. seemed like she was a big, that'd be hilarious. Uh, actually. Yeah. I'm going to have to hit up my friends, Sean and Liz and see who that was. She's our age. She's two days older than me. So no way. Yeah. I really might've been talking to her. Oh my God. I'm going to have to look this up. It's hilarious. Well, I'm going to text them right now. All right. Jenny, <laughs> Jenny is Joe's college on again, off again fling started off as friends. Uh, They started to become something more towards the end of college. And she pops up in a few different ways as a romantic interest, as well as uh, Natalie Martinez, who plays Amy Kindelan. Uh, Amy is someone who runs into Joe at graduation They kind of have a little meet cute and based on how he pursues her, that shapes their lives together. Uh, He's also joined by his friend played by Charlie Barnett, uh, Eric. Charlie Barnett was from uh, Russian Doll. He was the second lead in that other than Natasha Lyonne. Russian Doll and Orphan Black. I I get them mixed up all the time. <laughs> I've never seen either, and I really want to see both. It's He's great in Russian Doll. He shows up like halfway through the first season and kind of flips the whole show on its end. But here he's much more just the best friend role to Joe. Lifelong best friend, kind of like us. You know, they've been friends for forever. At, you know, he has an interesting character arc because at first I feel like he's kind of like, hey, go get him, uh, you know, sex crazed best friend. The and trope he, that we love. A trope that, that we, we absolutely love, love. And I point out every single time the show, there's a show that has it, which is most shows. Yeah. Uh, so at first he kind of starts out like that, but then he evolves into, even in the different storylines, um, more sensitive than that, you know. I yeah. just he did not take the arc I thought he would, which was nice. Yeah, for sure. He is he definitely doesn't drive much of the narrative in any of the timelines he's in, but he is always he's always kind, he's always supportive, he's always there. As is 
Joe's mom, Gwen, played by the actor Ann Ramsey, who Oh my god, it was Elizabeth Lale I talked to at that party. No way. Oh my <laughs> god. Wow. I, I I had no idea. You know what? I felt bad about that too because Was she nice? Did you Oh no, she was really nice. Me and her talked for like, I don't know, half hour, 45 minutes. Oh, that's but wonderful. I think she was I guess she was a big deal at the time, you know. Uh, it was kind of a mingly party. You moved around. I got the feeling that maybe she felt like she was just stuck with me, which is how most of my family and friends feel. We all feel stuck with you in some way. Yeah, but uh, no, she was really nice. That's, uh, wow. That is... I did not put it together until just now. That is incredible. So Anne Ramsey was in a league of their own. That's really all I know her from. But the mom is very, again, kind, supportive, doesn't really drive much of the narrative. We also have his uncle Frank, which is just a great name for an uncle and really should exclusively be for uncles, I think. Well, also this type of uncle. He is wise, but he's gruff. He's old fashioned, but he has- He's an alcoholic. He Right, he's- old-fashioned enough and sensitive enough to new ideas where he's not uh, a turnoff as a character? No, and that is something that I do appreciate about the show, especially as it tackles, you know, different forms of people's identities, is that people change within their timelines, because of their timelines, they're there's no real archetypes, I feel like, even though the show does have to be very blunt throughout its runtime, it doesn't, it's not blunt to its characters. It's blunt in its exposition because it really needs to be straightforward in order for you to juggle all three timelines as they happen. And in order for them to fit everything into one episode that they're trying to fit. Yeah, absolutely. And... Before we go on to the show, I do also want to call out uh, Joe and Jenny conceive a child uh, who in sort of his main timeline is named Christopher, uh, played by the actor John Gluck. Uh, Christopher is, what is he, like Wait, 10? Wait, I thought 11? his name was Lucas. His name was Christopher in the nurse timeline, Lucas in the cop timeline, and Zeke in, Zeke. The, rock, in the rock timeline. Oh, you know, I didn't even catch that. I thought he was Lucas in two timelines and Zeke in one. No, he oh, was, well. but he was Christopher. He was Christopher because he was named after Joe's dad. Right. Joe's dad, who was a police officer who died on 9-11. So we get that too. But Christopher as a character has SMA, which is spinal muscular atrophy. So he's in a wheelchair um, and that plays a big role across his timelines as well, but he is Joe and Jenny's biological son and really sweet kid. I really like great kid acting. I thought he did a fantastic job and I'm pretty sure most of the singing was him too. Beautiful voice. There were, there were a couple high notes that I think maybe they had to bring in a ringer for, (laughs) but he had this, he could do that soul thing. Uh, like, uh, I'm not even doing it justice. Riffs. 
He could riff. He could riff. Really well. I mean, I could not believe what was coming out of his mouth. And actually, I believed he was singing more than I believed Joe was singing. Oh, yeah. Sometimes, right? I don't know, because Joe didn't have a strong enough voice, I feel like, in order for it to be faked. I didn't think he had a great voice. It's not my style uh, voice. It, it depended on the song to yeah. me. There were some songs that needed to be tailored to his voice and others that is like, oh, he's the voice of a generation in like his rock timeline. And I was like, is he? Yeah, is I he? never I never really felt like he was the voice of a generation. But I, I, that's like, okay, that's like the show Hacks to me. Have you seen it on yeah, HBO? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's a show about this great comedian, this uh, Joan Rivers type. And they try to make her this amazing stand-up that is like this incredible joke writer. And they kind of fall flat on it when they're trying to show how smart and clever she is. They're doing jokes or dissecting a joke in a way that's like, that's not that clever. Mm. Like, if she was truly a great comedian, she would have more insight into this. And I felt that way about Rock Joe. Yeah. At least with Hacks, they have, even if she's not on top of her game all the time, you have this sense of history that I feel like is built after decades and decades of a career, whereas Joe, as a rock star, is, we're just kind of seeing him at face value because we don't get as much of that history. That's true. We're just told he's a rock star and we see him on stage in front of people, but it doesn't feel as earned yeah, but he is a musical man across his timelines as well. He is a his mom is a music teacher. He plays the piano. He has these dreams as well. He just the rock is where he follows his passion, man. He gets that passion. He's got his heart. He's it's on the sleeve. That's why it's red. That's why everything's red. Yeah, passion. Well, then, Ian, I think we could take a quick commercial break. And when we get back, we're going to dump out some exposition. And now a word from our sponsors. Hi, this is Ian, and I'm trying to do this commercial as quickly as possible. Please review and rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Hive Social at One and Done TV. Email us oneanddonepod at gmail.com with any suggestions or thoughts. If you haven't hit the skip forward 15 seconds button yet, I will be amazed. Okay, enjoy the show. When we have a show that is this narratively dense, we feel as if we have a duty to our guests to at least give them an understanding of where we're coming from when we're talking about these things, especially when we've got three different timelines running simultaneously. So I think it's time for a good old-fashioned three-part exposition dump. Which timeline are you going to start with, John? Ian, I'm going to go in an order that represents my frustration with the timelines themselves. I'm going to go from the story that I was least frustrated by to the one I was most frustrated by. I dig it. Okay. So the one I was least frustrated by was Nurse Joe. And so I'm going to try to get this out as quick as I can. 
Ian, how long do you... I think I could get it done in under a minute. What do you think? Okay. Yeah, let's, sure. Let's do it. Ready? Set. Go. So in Nurse Joe timeline, Joe goes to the lake with Jenny. Jenny told him at the lake that she was pregnant, and they raised a son named Christopher. Joe became a nurse because it was a stable job. Jenny was a paralegal, but never became a lawyer that she always wanted to be. Their marriage is falling apart, but Joe never stops fighting, and they work it out. However, Amy's boss, Barrett, gets her a grant to go to law school in Atlanta. She eventually goes with Joe's encouragement, but without Joe and Christopher, since Christopher is settled in New York. Joe hires an aide, Kinsley, to help with Christopher. Kinsley comes up with the idea for Joe to take zipper pants that Joe makes for Christopher and make them for more people that are in need of accessible clothing. That ends up leading to a deal with a department store to mass produce these magic pants. Kinsley and Joe get close and eventually kiss. Meanwhile, Jenny's in Atlanta helping Barrett and her professor with a pro bono case. She kicks butt and Barrett offers to make her a partner in a new firm. Joe goes to surprise Jenny, but Jenny's with Barrett in her apartment. Inside character news... Amy and Eric, in this timeline, are married, and they're looking to adopt. Then we have Congressman Bobby Diaz, who we'll get to in a second. He is shot and paralyzed, but he stays in politics, unlike some of the other timelines. Meanwhile, Uncle Frank's a drunk. Also, Bobby's uh, storyline seems to be kind of dangling at the end. I feel like they forgot about him Oh yeah, the last couple episodes, right? They kind of forgot about Bobby a lot through... The timelines. Bobby is a congressman in each of the three timelines, has various relationships with uh, the Joes and et cetera. He, in this timeline, there is a shooter at a rally. He is ultimately shot, paralyzed, but he also has Parkinson's disease, early onset Parkinson's. So he's not as big of a part of this timeline. We'll get to. No, but Joe like sort of rehabs him and also. It, it kind of the Bobby storyline leads into Joe's relationship with his father-in-law because he also uh, he runs the hospital or something. Yeah. So Bobby is sort of an in route into drama with his relationship with his father-in-law, with Amy and with his uncle. Kind of. I mean, the uncle just kind of shows up with a big scraggly. You know what it is? I think I'm I'm getting my timelines mixed up, dude. Oh, dude. We it's, it's, it's tough. tough. It's tough. It's tough. Colored lenses can only do so much. <laughs> and I, haircuts. I do want to quick highlight uh his father-in-law, Jenny's dad, is played by the actor Jack Coleman, who people would know as the senator from the later seasons of The Office. Oh, that's who he is. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. He's also general sort of bad guy for mysterious government organization. He's got that look. Like he can put people in a cell for a long time and nobody will ask questions. He got that is face. in a position of authority and he can grimace with the best of them. Mm-hmm. But overall, Ian, what did you think of this timeline? Uh, I agree that it was probably my favorite timeline. There was a lot more heart to it, I think. The relationship between him and Jenny was more interesting in this storyline than his relationships with Amy were in the other two storylines where he's involved with her. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, that might not be totally true. Rock, Rock Joe and Amy have a pretty interesting storyline. There's a lot going on with Rock Joe and Amy. 
Right. But uh, Nursing Joe, what do I want to highlight about this? I want to highlight that. Well, okay. So my younger brother, he has transverse myelitis. He's in a wheelchair. So if you want to make me cry, kids in wheelchairs is a pretty good way to do it. (laughs) And I actually really appreciated the way that this storyline highlighted disability inclusion. The storyline about making zipper pants to make it easier to help his son go to the bathroom, get him in and out of bed, whatever. And then his aide shows it to someone who gets them in this expo and all of a sudden they're going to sell all these zipper pants after their life has been so difficult. Mm -hmm. That rang so true to me because... Uh, there's a couple times in this storyline, especially I think cause, cause Joe's a nurse, he's more privy to this stuff. Mm-hmm. Oh, and he's raising Christopher in the storyline, but yeah. like they talk about how, you know, wheelchairs are destroyed by airplanes, uh, all the time by people traveling. So, so like they don't like to fly. The parents had never been apart from Christopher for even a night because they're so afraid of something going wrong. They have to turn him in his sleep and stuff like this. And actually for Kevin, my younger brother is always losing his cell phone and his wallet. And so I'm always buying him sweatpants with zippers for pockets. There's something about being in a wheelchair and zippers just help. And yeah. that uh, that just rang. That was super true to me. Also, that expo they go to and we're meeting other young people in wheelchairs and stuff that tugged at my heartstrings for sure. It was nice to see a story like this represented in a way that felt like this is just part of our lives. It was not meant to hammer home the difficulties and it wasn't they didn't put like too much extra strain on that part of their lives because it's just the life that they have it's not anything more than that and yes there are some things that they need to navigate but it made sense and Mm -hmm. yeah the relationship between joe and christopher was really sweet as i mean you want to make me cry, have a story about a dad and a son after I lost my son, you know, six months ago too. And so mm-hmm. I was, I was crying all the time too. And the, and this was an interesting thing from the development standpoint, the two showrunners, Russell friend and Garrett Lerner, they're the ones that brought in the son that was, he was not apparently part of Matt Reeves's original, original script was the son stuff. So oh, I thought that was wow. really interesting. Because it is such a driver for all three timelines in in their own way. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the pregnancy that, not Amy. Jenny. The pregnancy that Jenny did not tell Joe about, you know, leads to three very different storylines. Because it all starts there. And then, but eventually he finds out in the other storylines or whatever. And the child is such a driving force behind everything it's it's not just the fact that whoever is his parents in different storylines have to take care of him uh it's also the fact that everyone had to make big decisions based on this pregnancy or in joe's case based on finding out later that he has a son yeah and this 
storyline is sort of billed as the what if you chose family storyline. And well, I guess like love. Sorry. The cop one's probably family. What if he yeah, chose no, love? You're right. This one is if he went with love. Jenny. Jenny. God. Ugh. Bud, we got like two more timelines to get through. I know. So let's just get through them. Okay, this is the Jenny timeline. This is the Jenny timeline. The other Jenny timeline, because she's in all three timelines. And this is the one that I had the. Well, no, but the choices are you choose Jenny, you choose family, or you choose Amy. The nurse one was he chose Jenny. Yes. And so cop Joe, we've got, here's, here's dump number two. Joe goes to lunch with Frank and his family, and he eventually becomes a cop just like his old man. He eventually saves Congressman Diaz from the shooter and becomes a hero. With Frank's help, he gets promoted to detective. He meets Amy at their 10-year reunion, and they start to date. Amy is not only Bobby Diaz's campaign manager, but also in a relationship with the married congressman. Turns out she's not the only woman he's had an affair with, and he's paid off other women, leading to an arrest for mismanaging campaign finances. Uncle Frank was also wrapped up in the scandal, is suspended, and starts drinking again. Amy is blacklisted in politics. Amy's family was abused by cops, making her relationship with Joe pretty murky. She later decides to leave for her home in Miami to help her mom's campaign, and Joe proposes. Inside character news, Joe's biological son, Lucas, is being raised by Jenny, who in this timeline is an assistant DA, and her husband, Ray. Lucas eventually needs a blood transfusion for his surgery, and Joe becomes the donor. It's also how he finds out that Lucas is his biological son. Also, Eric has a wife, Mallory, who is pregnant and gives birth in a pizza shop. So that's Cop Joe. I like the prank that she pulled where uh, she made everyone think her water was breaking by... Oh, you're talking about Mallory? Yeah, Yeah. by dumping the water bottle on the floor. Mm -hmm. I like Mallory. She got me. This was the only timeline that Mallory was in, and I thought she was an MVP. When she showed up. Yes. The characters that were only in one timeline really helped me to figure out what was going on in that (laughs) timeline. Because that's all you had, really. It was like a character that was only in one timeline or a haircut. Mm -hmm. And this was the least hair done Joe. This was the most normal, you know, quote unquote, normal looking Joe. The most soft guy Kyle Chandler Joe. Most soft guy Kyle Chandler Joe, of course, because... Nurse Joe had glasses, and that's how you know. Yes. but Rockstar cu- Joe has, like, messy rockstar hair. And a beard. He's got a and beard. And a beard. Actually, the beard's the biggest part. You're right. Oh, yeah. And also, bottle of booze. But we'll get to that. Cop Joe. Cop Joe, I thought, was interesting because they definitely had to deal with the relationship that police officers have with their communities, which is definitely a fraught one. Yeah, and, especially you know, once he starts, he's together with Amy and her dad was arrested in a clearly racist incident when she was a, a child. And so then her relationship to police and then his relationship to her family is strained because of that. Yeah. And he is definitely trying to frame himself as one of the good ones. And he does recognize it felt very much like the last season of Brooklyn nine, nine. If you, if you watched it. Yeah. I love Brooklyn nine, nine as a show. And then when they had to deal with the politics of 
police post George Floyd, it definitely felt you felt the weight of that with every sort of decision oh. that this police officer was making. And I felt not that always too great for comedy. No, it worked a little bit better with the sort of melodrama that the, and I do want to clarify, I use the term melodrama, not in a derogatory sense. I just mean it to describe the way that this, Oh, it's a genre show. for yeah. sure. Just wanted to clear the air on that one. Yeah. Cause... Now mo- most people probably don't know that. Um, mm-hmm. or wouldn't make that distinction. There's two things about Cop Joe, really. It's like, hey, he's a hero cop, first of mm-hmm. all. He shoots a guy with a gun, saving a politician in a crowd of people. I like that later they addressed, uh, you shot him Should in a have... crowd? Glad you hit him and not anyone else. But He's um, very good at his job. Very right. good. Very good. He's a great beat cop. And later he gets a promotion and then demotes himself back to beat cop and he's like every time i'm put on a new beat i go around to people and i give them my personal number so they'll call me in an emergency and he's trying to bring more trust to the communities and it's like no you wouldn't yeah i mean but so they they work very hard to try to portray him as the good cop the ideal cop he even turns in his uncle for doing something corrupt. He's the one Um, that's always trying to do the right thing. And that's the thing that kind of drives everything. And there's like probably an episode called like do the right thing or something like that too. I don't know. That was one of the general themes. Uh, It'd have to be a New York episode in the summer if they were going to call it do the right thing. Mm -hmm. Great movie. Spike Lee. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, the last thing about cop Joe's storyline is that at this 10-year college reunion, he runs into... I'm not giving you this one. I gave it to you three times already, bud. Jamie? Who's Jamie? I don't know Who is Jamie? Ian, who is Jamie? Describe Jamie to me right now. Who is Jamie? blonde. I talked to her at a party. (laughs) No! Ian! Jesse? No! (laughs) What is her name? So the J. Yeah, it is. Ian. Jamie. So Jenny. Jenny, <laughs> you silly little man. Right, what right, the... right. So he okay, runs what's, into what's Jamie. What's her name? Uh, <laughs> Jenny. Okay. He runs into Jenny. I'm going to actually carve this into my arm with a knife real quick so I remember. <laughs> so he runs into Jenny at his 10-year college reunion and it, it's at the planetarium or something, and her son in a wheelchair is a, he's his big storyline. He's very interested in space. He wants to be an astronaut. And the theme um, of the college reunion is dancing under the stars, as all college reunions are. Our ten year high school reunion was canceled because of COVID, and as far as I know, no one's been interested to try to get it back together. Nope. Uh, but no, everyone else has a big theme. He meets. What's his name in this storyline? Uh, it's not Zeke. Lucas. Is it Lucas? It's oh, it's Lucas, Lucas in, this, in one. this one. Lucas is their biological son. That's so yeah. weird. That is what I think of. I, I think of Lucas as the predominant name. <laughs> so he runs into them, and then later Lucas is having surgery. They need to make sure they have plenty of blood on hand during the surgery. It's like a spinal fusion surgery. It's a big surgery. Right. And I'm going to say Jenny... 
comes to him. There it is. At a certain point and is like, 16th times the charm, bud. That kid you met, he's your biological son, but he's me and my husband's MF and actual son. So don't get in the way of that. But we need your blood. And so (laughs) just like every other storyline or the rock Joe, he's always wanted to be a dad. So all of a sudden he finds out he has this kid. He's just too excited about it. And he does get some would say he loses his mind. Uh, in some ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's get to uh, Rock Joe. Yeah, because this is the one that I had the most issue with for that exact reason. Here we go with Rock Joe. So in this timeline, Joe pursued Amy, who he ran into at graduation, and she encouraged him to pursue his passion for music. He's a rock star now, married to Amy, who is still Congressman Diaz's campaign manager. They're having trouble conceiving, which is made more complicated when Jenny tells Joe at the reunion that she gave up their son for adoption. The congressman reveals he has Parkinson's and suspends his campaign, so Amy takes his place in the race. When he's not rocking out, Joe goes full psycho and stalks down the kid Jenny gave up for adoption in a variety (laughs) of ways. He's named Zeke in this timeline. Jenny is blackmailed into part of this journey, so Amy thinks Joe is having an affair. So she bangs Diaz in response, and then Amy gets pregnant with the Bobby baby. Joe thinks he did nothing wrong on his stock parade, so he gets pissed at Amy and goes on a drunken bender on tour. Rock Joe crashes his car and subsequently goes to rehab before confessing his love to the married with kids, Jenny, before the final credits. Inside character news. Eric works on Amy's campaign with a kid of his own and starts dating another dude on the campaign trail. Uncle Frank is also Joe's security. He's not a sloppy-ass drunk in this one. In Rock Joe, Uncle Frank has his life together. He's the head of Joe's security detail, and he's the one that's like, Joe, you got me sober all those years ago. I'm going to look out for you. It's a lot of Joe like reinvigorated Frank's need to his passion inspired Frank to get sober. So in the timeline where Joe is not passionate about his career, that's where Frank goes down the deep end. Frank is, he seems to be an authority figure in this one, but he is also constantly referring to the fact that he loses power with Joe after Joe put him on the payroll. So he's still... Which is true. He's subservient to him. He's, He's holding doors open for him. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, Frank, can you take care of this for me? Sure, kid. Joe is a, like, stadium rock star performer, though. He's not just, like, playing little concert halls. He is apparently the biggest freaking deal in the world. Although he is one. playing Webster Hall several times, which is the venue I used to be a stagehand at. <laughs> With all this money, Joe does have the wildest apartment I've seen in a show or movie I can't think of anything like it. It is like a two-story loft that is about as high as a five-story building where I think that had to have been like some sort of open air office space. I think you're totally right because of those open air stairs that are in that apartment. But they say it's a $10 million loft that is in the Dumbo district and I know this because they do this establishing shot that uh, pretty much everybody uses for everything these days. It's the shot of the Brooklyn Bridge from these cobblestone streets uh, between a couple buildings. 
it's the poster for the movie for Once Upon a Time in America. And I have seen it in countless commercials, TV shows, whatever. Media likes to make it like everything in New York happens there. And I have filmed many things there as a PA. Mm. And the parking there is atrocious. <laughs> uh, there's always pedestrians just th- so it's impossible to get through. There are always people taking that picture so it's hard to get a good shot of that location without blocking off the street, without seeing all these other people taking pictures of that location. <laughs> it's a hassle, and I hate filming there. But yes, it would be like a $10 million loft there. Yeah. It's like a, you think- it, it's a big thing in New York where they convert old warehouses into high ceilinged living I guess that, spaces. that makes sense. It was, it was just the presumably like the spiral staircase that was opened up in the middle of the, what should have been an office space that I, oh, I think you're completely right about that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was a cool space though. There was a lot of, there was a lot of, space in that space i mean if you have hannah montana money which i assume he does (laughs) then yeah yeah you can afford that space and when you have hannah montana money you stalk a child that you don't know as well and that is where i had some of the biggest issues with this show specifically this storyline so i say this as somebody who at the beginning of this storyline i was like Oh, I think I identify most with Rock Joe because you're a, he, you're a Hannah Montana type. Of course, I like to consider myself more of an evolving Miley Cyrus, but you know, I'm basically it's a short Hannah hair. Montana. Yeah, if you if I had pigtails, I would be full Hannah Montana. He's always wanted to have a kid. He Amy has not been able to conceive. She has a couple miscarriages. Obviously, that rings true to me and definitely hits home. And when he finds out that. Jenny, her name is Jenny. Her name is Jenny. Right, Jenny. Her na- cool. He goes wild. He enlists Frank to try to track down this kid. Then he goes to Jenny and says, "Hey, if you don't put my name on this like form that I need to find this kid, I'm going to tell your entire family the secret that you've been hiding for ten years." Does he say that to her at her birthday party? That's what he implies. He does oh. like a, you know, uh, something might happen. Somebody might tell something. Who knows? He oh, does that you're right. I, mi- yeah. I think I missed or forgot that, but you're right. Yeah. And so he then takes Jenny when he finds Zeke. He takes Jenny to watch this kid from across the street and see him get into his adopted parents' like pickup truck. And he's like, that kid needs a van. So he donates $100,000 without telling his wife, Amy, that he is doing it for a van for this kid that he's never met. And then he goes to the kid's Halloween party dressed up in a mask and like, you know, a cowboy outfit and tries to talk to the kid. He looks like Idris Elba from The Dark Tower. Sure. (laughs) <laughs> I think it's the Dark Tower. I thought it it's was a big more... time book that it did not do well as a movie. Yes. Okay. That is the Dark Tower. Yes. It is like full bandana with like Hamburglar, you know, eyes that he walks up and he's like, you know, 
why don't you come into my van? He doesn't yeah, say that, but was, he might as it well. It was have. pretty close to, hey, kid, want some candy? It was extremely close. Instead, it's the rich person version, which is, hey, kid, here's this car. <laughs> yeah. And then the kid sings on Instagram and he likes, oh, he likes a TikTok. And then he does a duet with the kid on TikTok. And I was just like, play your cards a little closer to your chest, Rock Joe. You don't need to make this kid. Well, this is the beginning of Rock Joe really spiraling because his marriage is really on the rocks. They can't conceive a child. Uh, He's not sure if the marriage is going south. And then all of a sudden, this kid becomes the focus of his entire life. His entire drive is just like, how can I try to connect and be, how can I steal this son away from that family slowly but surely? How can I, without doing just this, make a metaphorical burlap sack and throw it over this child and sling him over my shoulder and take him on tour with me? He just had like the ickiest behavior to me I, I you know i've had i've seen it done it's like if somebody loves you more than you love them and they try to give you a lot so that you'll come closer and closer yeah i had a girlfriend once where our relationship was on the rocks and she offered to do my taxes for three years and i was like i think you're just trying me to tether me to you more and that's what he was doing. Gotcha. Yeah, he definitely was. He tries to get him to he tries to get Zeke to go on tour with him, and his adopted parents are like, He's our son. Stop doing this. Please. You're building him up in this way that's completely unrealistic. Right. And he says to Zeke, he's like, Hey, why don't you sing at the game at the Giants game with me? Sing the Zeke's national like, anthem. Yeah. And the parents are like, uh, yeah, okay. I see what you're doing, Joe, but fine. And then after the national anthem, he's like, Zeke, let's go on tour. Do you see the crazy eyes I'm doing? Oh, yeah. You Zeke, did let's good go crazy. on tour. <laughs> uh, and the parents are just like, no, like you're not his dad. We yeah. get it, but you're not his dad. And now I also it's like you don't know how to take care of him. You don't know what it takes to take care of a child with this many special needs and on top of that they have like three other children yeah who and they all have school and they're like so what you think just because you're rich you can take become his dad take him away from school and upend five people's lives because you're unhappy in your marriage yeah it's built on this idea that this is the joe that is entitled for sure and they even say that to him a couple times, you know, somebody, somebody says no to him and they're like, I bet you don't hear no very often. And so they try to justify it that way. But from a general plotting perspective, this is the one that felt like it took it took that idea too far. And it felt it felt very alienating. And it, yeah, like you said, icky. It just felt icky. Especially because there could have been like really nice moments with like there was there's there's one moment that is actually the moment that probably most got me in the show that happened in this timeline. They tend to they try to tie all three 
timelines together in various ways throughout some of the episodes. Like, yeah, they either draw parallels where like someone at the end, like one couple's having a baby while in another timeline, another couple is waiting on a baby to be born so they can adopt that baby. Um, and sometimes it's physical stuff like in time and dates. Like there's one episode because Joe's dad died in 9-11. The second episode of the series is all sort of structured around the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And the one that I'm thinking of, the episode ends with all the Joes looking up and seeing like the same shooting star. And right in the Rock Joe timeline, after because and this is after they after Jenny and Rock Joe have stalked Zeke from across the street and used their binoculars to peep on the little boy. And, but they're driving back. She sees a shooting star and she goes, uh, make a wish. And he just says, I wish I could hold him. That got me. That got me real good. I thought that was very earnest. But then of course they ramp it up 16 fold throughout the rest of the show and kind of made me lose that feeling. Or like so. another example of the way that the timelines, you know, kiss are, it was as simple as in, in one timeline, uh, cop Joe goes, I would never want to be famous. And they do a hard cut to rock Joe in front of a Rolling Stone sized crowd. Yeah. And basically the gimmick of this show is that if you make three different choices, your life could be totally different, but the heart of this show tends to be in, but look at how much could be the same. Yeah, for sure. They try to lean into the idea of appreciate what's in front of you, not all of the things that could be, but they're also still very interested in the different divergences that can happen. It's a, it's a fine line. It's an interesting balance. And I think we have a f definitely have more to talk about. But Ian, I believe we should take a quick commercial break. And then when we get back, we will do some Dunzo Awards. And now a word from our sponsors. It's time for the Dunzo Awards. These are the superlatives that we give out to every show we watch. It could be the best, it could be the worst, it could be the most, it could be the weirdest, whatever it is. We have decided to give elements of this show the recognition that they so, so very, very, very much deserve. Ian, we each get two Dunzos. I would like to let you do the honor of delivering your first Dunzo Award. My first Dunzo Award goes to the show as a whole, and it is the Dodge the Obvious Award, mm. which I want to applaud this show narratively as not falling into the trap that a lot of shows do, which is the drama hinges on people lying to each other. Yeah, the drama hinges on misinformation, not telling people stuff, actively lying and drawing it out for seasons. You and know, when they 
when they do have characters lying to each other, they don't do it for very long, and they no. always justify it, exactly. which I do appreciate. Yeah, that someone's lying for an episode, maybe two, and then they either fess up or get caught, and the two people in whatever relationship it is have a conversation about it. They deal with it. For I sure. was feeling this way. You were feeling that way. I thought this. You thought that. I get how this would hurt you. I'm sorry I hurt you. I'm sorry I did this. Or like, you know what? I I see where you're coming from, but I don't care. And I'm very hurt. You know, like they have direct conversations about the problems that they're having, which can be a touch expositional, but more than anything, what exhausts me about TV shows is when everything hinges on a lie and when you're screaming at the TV, just tell them, just yeah. tell them the truth or like you're, tell them the crucial piece of information you've left out. Yeah. You know, the thing that everybody else knows except for them, just say it. And I really appreciated the fact that this show did not lie on that. And yeah, you kind of you touched on it definitely, but the idea, the dialogue in this show is very blunt. It is very narrative driven. It is very no character is hiding anything. Every character says exactly what they're feeling. At I'm doing any this. Given. I'm thinking this. We're about to go here. We were just here. I was talking to the to Uncle Frank. Uncle Frank said this. You know, but it was necessary for sure yeah. to to do the show because of the juggling timelines. There's a lot going on. A lot going on in the show. And so it, there were a couple of times I was a little annoyed at the clunkiness of the dialogue, but at the same time, I'm glad it was, it was not overridden. It was understated and, and it's, and it was very grounded in characters have relationships with each other and therefore they're, they care. They care. There's a lot of sympathy between mm-hmm. everyone. So that's an excellent, excellent Dunzo, sir. John, what's your first Dunzo? My first Dunzo award goes to the worst nickname. <laughs> and that will have to go to Jenny's nickname for Joe. Ian, I know you barely remember Jenny's Jamie. name. Jamie. I know you barely Jenny remember Jamie. Jenny calls Jam- Joe Jamie. <laughs> No, she goes, wait, what's what's your name again? Starts with the J. <laughs> Do you remember what Jenny's nickname for Joe was? T.S. Too Soon. Hated it. Yeah. Hated that nickname. Terrible yeah. nickname. Jenny says that she has called Joe in college T.S. for too Behind soon. Behind his Be- back. Because he, he came into her life too soon, and she had feelings for him too soon. Nobody would ever give somebody a nickname like that. I don't think that that is fair to Joe. I don't think that's fair to Jenny's creativity. I don't think that's fair to Jamie's creativity. I did not think that that nickname worked. And I would have been not offended if somebody called me that, but I would have been like, I would have, I would have judged them a little bit if somebody called me TS. And this is somebody who once in college was called by a girl that he made out with at a party I was called Generic John. Wow. And I would much rather be called Generic John 
than TS. Oh, let's get some emails about that. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I've never heard this before. You never heard this? John. Yeah. No, I, I was, love it. It was. I'm thinking about changing your name in my context. <laughs> <laughs> it was. I can't believe I've ever told you this story. Yeah. Maybe I, you did, but I was probably drunk. In the months before I met my wife, I made out with a couple of girls at college parties. It got back to me that from a friend of a friend that this woman described me as, oh, you know, he's like six feet, brown hair, brown eyes, no real distinguishing features. It's just <laughs> generic John. Oh, my God. You're yeah. just, you're a and safe, is, soft boy, John. That's all that it is. is. I am the James Wolk of the normies. That is for sure. Ian, what's your second Dunzo Award? Uh, my second Dunzo Award is the Wait What Award. <laughs> and I'm going to give it to two things, actually. One of, the, one of which was when we find out Joe has a sister. And I'm oh, like, yeah, I guess she was around a couple in some flashbacks or a dinner table scene or something. But it's like halfway through the season, we're like, He's like, oh, my sister. I'm like, wait, you have a sister? And then all of a sudden he has a sister. And she there's like some drama inserted into two or three episodes where she left the house and she's the a dad, bit of a wayward soul. Yeah, but she also kind of uh hinted at the fact that the dad might have been kind of abusive to her, yeah. whether it's physically or, or verbally. And that it did bring some depth to the fact that Joe is always putting his dad on a pedestal. But at the same time, that came out of nowhere to me. Yeah. And it was halfway through the season, and I it, it felt maybe a little bit like they were just throwing in some drama to throw in some drama. Or they realized they needed another family member. I don't know. She popped in in the pilot as well as the seventh episode, which I, I do want to get to at some point. But, yeah, she definitely was thrown in there as a catalyst more so than as a human being. So that's kind of a bad wait what, but on the good side of wait what, when Amy at the end of one episode in Rock Joe's timeline reveals she's pregnant at the end of an episode. And I wrote down, I was like, you know what? Good pregnancy reveal. That was like well-timed, good drama. And then the next episode, she reveals that the baby is Bobby's from the one time they slept together, despite her and Joe trying so many times. And that made me go, wait, what? And it was good. It was good drama there. They got, that was me. good. That was two episodes in a row. They got me with Amy's pregnancy. Great melodrama. Absolutely. Yeah. It was, there was a lot of, a lot of interesting dynamics when it came to, what it means to be a parent and mm. how how we handle that sort of responsibility. And that was one that I was not expecting. I thought they were just going to be like, well, Amy slept with Bobby. That's the drama. But now oh, there's... And now Bobby's shot. And now oh, she's yeah. putting his watch into his casket. And that's that... how his wife figures out that she slept with Bobby because he only takes his watch off to have sex or shower. Yeah. Dude, and then when his wife decides to take over his congressional seat instead of letting Amy run for it after it was Savage. like originally 
I I wrote that down too. I was like, that was cold blooded, but also I get it. Yeah. She was, it was interesting because Bobby was a dog in all the timelines. He was always a dog for Amy though. And yeah. then some intern he paid off. Yeah, he definitely, he was a dog for Amy, but he presumably was a dog to other women in the past. And he was definitely a dog to his wife who she, she definitely had the vibes of like, I know what's going on here, but we'll, we'll, we're, this is our agreement. It was very house of cardsy. Yeah. Or she was like, this is happening to me, but you know what? I'm keeping it together for the press and for the kids and whatever. I guess we did gloss over the fact that Bobby Diaz did die in the Rock Joe timeline. Right. In uh, the Nurse Joe and the Cop Joe timeline, Cop Joe, he's going to get shot at this rally for his campaign, and Mm -hmm. Cop Joe saves him. But in the Nurse one, Nurse Joe has to take care of the shot congressman because Cop Joe wasn't there to save him. Mm -hmm. And then in the Rock Joe Bobby is, he gets Parkinson's, so he's going to step down and let Amy take his seat. And at one of the fun, the campaigns that they're doing together, someone comes up at Webster Hall with a gun and shoots him. And by the way, shoots Amy too. And it's just some vague arm injury. I don't think he shoots Amy. I think she just gets knocked down and like breaks her wrist or something. She wasn't shot though. Also, that's the second PTSD storyline. They just kind of gloss over Oh, yeah, they kind of abandoned that one. She was like, see the images of her boss being shot, boss and former lover. Yeah. Also, she was shot at, too. He was right next to her. Yeah. You know? Would at least hurt your ears. At least Cop Joe had one episode to deal with his PTSD before he solved it, I guess. Dude, ace therapy instantly. He must have, uh, this show is brought to you by Teladoc. Uh, <laughs> she was like shaken up for like a second by it. Yeah. It was a, it was a quick tumble and she very, very easily recovered. Uh, what's your second Denzo? <laughs> Cause like always you're going sure. on and on about my second Dunzo and I forget you haven't even said yours. It's okay. It's just because I listen and engage and you just kind of. So Jamie was doing the <laughs> Go ahead, I Jamie. Hate, What's your second dunzo? I hate so much about the things you choose to be. My second dunzo goes to the character that drove the least amount of narrative. And that would go to Joe's mom. My goodness. In every exposition dump that I did. I never mentioned Joe's mom because she's always just kind of there, but he, he has a close relationship with his mom in every one of the, he lives with her in cop Joe timeline. And then he, he's got a very supportive grandmother and nurse Joe timeline in rock Joe. Even when before Amy has a miscarriage, he, his mom is the first one that he tells about baby. She's, she's still a grieving widow, from her husband as well. She has a lot going on, but she doesn't add anything to the story ever. It seems like. No, I mean, she's there mostly to be a supportive mom, a supportive grandma impart wisdom, uh, or, you know, she started some 
children's choir. And also she sets up the interview that Joe did that got him to be a famous musician. But it's all Joe related. She doesn't have much of her own storyline. It's all about Joe and about Joe's dad and maybe given some wise words, but yeah, for a show that does generally give its supporting character some agency outside of Joe, even though Joe is clearly the driver of a lot of it, it does feel weird that his mom is the one that is kind of left to be the solely dependent on Joe. I wish I, and they were kind of leaning towards that. And maybe they would have gone and if they got into a second season, she starts to date towards the end of the series. Um, so I really maybe like they would the have... scene that she had where at first she asks Joe how he's feeling about her dating and he's like upset. And then he comes back from wherever he went and she's like, you know what, Joe, I made a mistake earlier by asking you how you felt because actually it's not your business. And actually we've done a lot together and I, I don't need your permission and I'm finally ready to move on after 20 years. And I think it's my fault. I, she said something about how she wanted to make time stand still when he was in college. Yeah. And so there was a bit of arrested development there. Hey. In the proper use of the term. Yeah. Uh, and that was, she, that was like a good scene for her. It that was, was the most I, that she got for herself. I wanted more scenes like that, for sure. She I probably wanted, would have in season two. I think you're right. I would hope so. I would hope so because she did a, I thought she, the actor did a really great job and I just wanted to see a little bit more from them, but they were also juggling, of course, a lot. And yeah, we haven't even really gotten into much of the Eric stuff either. He oh, was, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> who cares about Eric? About halfway <laughs> through the season, we it's revealed that in, one of the timelines, Eric is married to Amy. Yeah. Yeah. And I was nurse, like, in Nurse Joe. Yeah. He was, I was he's like, been married to her the whole time. Yeah. Wait, what? <laughs> no, I swear that was like halfway through. I think they were trying to make it like kind of a reveal because then episode seven and the flashback episode, we see him date her more. But I don't know. Maybe it just got lost in the shuffle to me based on the timelines. But it felt like a mid-season thing to me. Amy's a non-factor in the Nurse Joe timeline, for sure. That does lead into one big thing that I want to talk about is that seventh episode, the flashback episode. I So halfway through the season, they dedicated an entire episode basically to what happened immediately after Joe made those choices? What happened at the lake when he went to see Jenny? What happened when he was with Amy after graduation? What happened when he was at lunch with his family to become a cop? I think that that show, that episode should have been the pilot. Mm. I think it would have been better to have established that history and then to be able to kind of see where it grew from there and use the, you know, the initial introductions of all three Joes as the sort of segue at the end of the first episode into the second episode. Yeah, it's one of those things that they're doing narratively where 
they create questions in your mind for several episodes, and then they create an entire flashback episode to answer those questions. And I don't really think it hit. Episode seven was the worst one to me. It was, it was straight up boring. It was kind of confusing. Um, and I actively wanted it to be over <laughs> and just felt like maybe maybe half an episode to it, but I didn't need to see Eric in all those different situations yeah. to figure out what was going on. I think it would have been more effective as a pilot because when you – I. I don't mean to dive into your psychology in this instance, though I always want to in other instances. Crack me in I, half like an egg, John. It's fine. <laughs> I think it has to do with your father. <laughs> it's all coming back to me. I think that it was more boring because I felt this too. I yeah. think it was more boring because we generally knew what was going to happen. And so, therefore, there didn't feel like there were the stakes to any of those decisions because we knew kind of how it worked out. We knew that Eric did end up marrying Amy in the Nurse Joe timeline. Apparently, you didn't because you didn't notice until halfway through the season. But there was other things like you generally know that he becomes a cop. And I think the big reveal there is that Frank isn't the one that convinced Joe to be a cop. It was an officer that Joe's dad had saved on 9-11 that convinced him. So there was that sort of turn to it. And they were trying to throw a couple more of those turns in there as well. I just don't think that they paid off enough to make that the midpoint of the season. And if you had seen the divergences earlier, it would have been more, I would have been more invested in what was happening in the flashback. You know what is a good example of that, I think, is that when Cop Joe brings Amy to dinner for the first time, Eric brings up the fact that they had a date right after graduation and she doesn't remember it and he remembers it vividly. And that was just kind of confusing to me mm-hmm. at the time. And then episode seven, it, it clicked for me that it was like, oh, in two of the timelines, when Joe didn't go out with Amy... Eric asked out Amy and that led to different things. Mm-hmm. Um, that I, I did not get that for a while. It tried to position it as a payoff when it was just sort of more information. And that I think is, it's a fine line. You're betting on your audience investing more than they probably were at that point. Yeah. And so, yeah. You're John, that is some great A analysis right there. I, I think you're right on. Uh, I'll take my bows and leave gracefully. Though, um, what else should we talk about? Well, I think let's take a quick commercial break and then we can get into why it was canceled. And now a word from our sponsors. Ordinary Joe ran from September of 2021 to January of 2022, 13 episodes. All of them are available on Peacock, uh, if anyone is curious. And it seemed like the big killer was low ratings. ratings. Yeah. We should add a boo after that (laughs) because that's like, oh, that's classic. It is classic. It was pretty 
it was met with pretty mixed reception, you know, like kind of mid fifties on Metacritic, mid fifties on Rotten Tomatoes. I was looking at some of the ratings. It averaged a 0.5 share in the 18 to 49 crowd with 3.3 million viewers per episode in the Nielsen live plus seven numbers. So live plus seven. It's who watches it live plus the week after. Okay. On like DVR. Yikes. Three million people in over the course of a whole week, not just one showing. That's, that's bad. Yeah. And I really think that this is a show that needed to have the kind of this is us levels of engagement. Oh yeah. In order for it to sustain itself. Even if it didn't have the ratings, I'm guessing that it kind of fell off. If it had the online chatter or something, you know, if people were like, what's going to happen next episode? Like, Oh my God, can you believe what just happened? I remember a lot of seeing a lot of promos for this show when it was coming out. Mm -hmm. I, it came up a lot on Hulu because it was airing on Hulu as well as part of NBC's deal with them. And I was seeing some posters and I was seeing some display ads and it just sort of died on the vine. I think, I don't think that there was enough of an audience that really bought into it. And with that and with low ratings, I just don't think they saw much of a, a a long-term life for this sort of. Also, I got to think, this show was expensive, man. It looked expensive. They were yeah. at, there were a ton of locations. There were big gr- audiences, big groups of people. Though the big groups of people were kind of funny because you could definitely tell they were shooting big groups of people in COVID because yeah, they would but, when they had rallies, they had people like standing six feet apart. Yes, I do think they did a better job though than like why the last man. Agreed. Yeah. Because I was, even though I didn't notice it too much with Why the Last Man, I was taking a closer look at it this time around. Also, mm-hmm. part of me was concerned for the kid. I mean, he's already got um, whatever muscular disease that is. I got to think that he is, uh, what do you call it? Uh, Dangerous. D- yeah, he's got a gun. Um, no, what, what do you call it when you're more susceptible to COVID? We were saying Immune it. Like, comprom- immunocompromised? He had a lot of screen time. He did. And he was great. I thought he was one of the best parts of the show. His best moment was when Joe, Rock Joe, first like puts out the duet online and Zeke sees him and Joe doing the duet on TV with his family, his eyes light up yeah. in the biggest, brightest way that I legitimately for a second thought they did some after effects on it. Hmm. He was so good in that moment being a kid who was supremely starstruck. Mm-hmm. He was and great. even even in the the Nurse Joe timeline too, the whole thing about Jenny, Jamie, Jaffe, whatever you want to call her, going to Atlanta for her schooling. And they all are like, yep, we're going to pick up and we're going to go to Atlanta. And you could kind of see through uh, Christopher in that timeline. Christopher is like, I just want my parents to be together. And the way that he sort of delivers that sort of arc and like that motivation, you, I bought it wholly. Because mm-hmm. he would have 
he would have traveled halfway like down the coast just to kind of keep his mom and dad together. And that made total sense. Dude, for Joe and Christopher to figure out that the mom is probably having an affair right at the same moment when they open the door, when they arrive in Atlanta, that was a good, that was a solid moment to end on. Yeah. There was relationship. That was, uh, I mean, not, not in a completionist sense, but that, okay. So it's her and someone that she works at a law firm with who hooks her up so she can get, finish out her law degree in Atlanta. So she's down in Atlanta and she's working with him and they're kind of getting chummy going out together. And there's this feeling in this show in particular, anytime a man and woman are together, they're going to bang. They're definitely going to bang. And I kind of hate that, but then he does subvert it. He's in a situation where he's like, Oh, I shouldn't be here. And he pushes away once or twice. So then at the end, it did make it, kind of surprising that he was there in the room with her and the extra drama of Christopher being there was kind of a wait, what moment for me. (laughs) And that's my catchphrase now. And (laughs) please don't too late. Make it, put it on a t-shirt. But then there was this aspect throughout the show of like, if you're working for or with someone, you're probably going to kiss them. Yeah. So that was uh, prevalent. Yeah, there was that with Kinsley too, Joe's or Christopher's aide in the Nurse Joe timeline as well, which I I shuddered at when I read it in the exposition dump, but I only shuddered at the name Kinsley because I did not like the name (laughs) Kinsley. I thought she was an interesting sort of figure for sure in the show. When Jenny was drunk and Barrett, He's like, well, I shouldn't be here. And she's drunk on the bed and she says something like, I wish I was younger or I should have been younger, something like that. And it didn't really make sense to me. I think she was just saying that she should have done this when she was younger. Oh. She should have gone to law school. She should have helped out with pro bono cases. She should have been doing this longer and she could have been happier sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else why it was canceled? No, just low ratings, low engagement. James Wolk will continue to walk the earth and search for another Bob Benson meme. And uh, until then, we've we've got an ordinary Joe right here. So from one generic John about one ordinary Joe. (laughs) Is he playing that or was that just now? That was just now. Nice. Ian. Would you renew? I would not renew because this show was, it had its moments. I don't want to say it was good, but I would not say it was bad either. I think it was ambitious. It tried to do a lot of things. It was a little bit sappy and melodramatic but it also had its moments of being legit good drama as well. I thought the actors did a great job of being three different versions of the same character. I thought that the writing, most importantly, it was structured very well. I think for the most part, except for that episode seven uh, fiasco, (laughs) 
that they juggled everything really well. I thought that the all the pieces were put together and for the most part, the right order in order to give out the information so that you could be surprised. And it was cool how the timelines were parallel to each other and sometimes they juxtaposed each other. And sometimes you would get information from one timeline from a different timeline. That stuff was cool. Mm-hmm. And I appreciated all that. But they threw the baby out with the bathwater. They threw the whole kitchen sink at this show. I just think they tried to pack in too much drama into 13 episodes and they let some storylines die on the vine and they could have dealt with some of the problems for longer instead of having to, I think, manufacture some drama uh, moving forward for an, oh my gosh, or a wait, what moment so that you could, so that would be so dramatic. And I prefer a Mad Men where it's like one person has one problem and they slowly sizzle on that until it pops, you know, for five episodes and it just affects their day-to-day life. You know, I would have really, they could have just had Cop Joe deal with PTSD, his uncle, his uncle's corruption and the congressman's corruption that could have been a season. I think that this season had enough storylines for two, maybe three seasons. And mm-hmm. I just think they tried to do too much. And it came across as a little forced. And the music, among other things, was a little sappy. And mm-hmm. I never was like, what's going to happen next? I was just like, okay, next episode. What are they going to just throw at me out of nowhere? So, John... Would you renew? I would and renew. Okay. Yeah. It was, I agree with almost everything you said. I think that it was too much. I think, yeah, they just bit off a little bit more than they could chew from a narrative perspective. Because I think they had enough of an ear for their characters and enough of an enough of an understanding of their characters to create that sort of long simmering drama because they clearly had characters that cared about each other in a way that felt at times very honest to yeah. if not to if not to reality but to each other and they had a good emotional foundation that way Yeah, and I wanted to see a little bit more of that, but I also was, by the end of it, I was just kind of done. I was just kind of done with being with these characters, and I didn't hate my time with them, and I, there were things that clearly frustrated me, especially with the Rock Joe stuff, but... I, and I'd be interested if, if I saw these writers on another project, and if it was like a small indie film or something like that, I'd be like, oh... They have a great eye for character. I would probably give that a go. And, but to watch this story unfold, I don't think that there was enough momentum to make it worth more of my time. So, agreed. Yeah, it was, 
I think for those that are interested, I think the big thing that they did that kind of hurt it for me was they were trying that this is us thing. They were trying to reveal things uh, and sort of plant nuggets for you to learn about later. Whereas they could have done just that, but with character as opposed to with plot. Mm. And that's where it kind of suffered. So before we wrap up, I do have two things that I want to bring up. Go for it. One, the Billy Joel of it. (laughs) Yeah, he literally was a piano man in the cop, Joe. Joe was obsessed with Billy Joel. One of the things that, from a music perspective, that I did like was the use of the sort of opening chords of the lullaby, Goodnight, My Love, as a sort of motif, the dun, 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 I really like that as sort mm-hmm. of a musical thing. It was really sweet. And it's just a great song. Um, I don't know. Anything else to say on the Billy Joel thing? I just wanted to bring it up. No, he I just... I love Billy Joel. And the, I think they tried to draw a little bit of a parallel between his life and the song Piano Man in Cop Joe. Yeah. There was one line in the nurse Joe storyline too, where he said, I used to want to be Billy Joel. Now I'm just one of those guys that he sings about, which that was a good line. The other one, and this is kind of a cut Dunzo for me that I almost did, but I definitely wanted to bring it up. The, the Dunzo I had for it was the most I laughed accidentally. (laughs) And the way that uncle Frank at one point said, the wrong man died that day. Oh my God. I wrote that down too. <laughs> oh my God. Yes. The wrong kid died. Wrong walk kid hard. Died. And literally in, in episode 12, this is walk hard, but just like a similarly like overly dramatic line. He goes, I don't need you. I don't need anyone. You hear me? <laughs> I wrote LOL next to that. Because that was just so drunk, ranting cliche that I could not help but laugh. It slayed me. It slayed me. So I I couldn't let that couldn't let that die with this show. Ian, um, any final thoughts? Or? I don't remember why exactly I wrote this episode eight. I named anus tart in my <laughs> notes. Because they were all like all the storylines were about a fresh start or something like that. Like, let's start over. And I cannot. (laughs) Episode eight, anus tart. For any of you Arrested Development season four fans, original season four, not this new edited into 23 episode crap that they shoved down our throats. (laughs) Fatal consequences, my ass, Netflix. Ian, where can people find us? Tweet at us or follow us on Instagram or follow us on Twitter, I guess, at One and Done TV. You can email us. Our email is oneanddonepod at gmail.com. You can Venmo me at Hamil Chin. Again, because one person did that. And it was very nice. I'll take all of your money, please. Uh, we have a website, oneanddonetv.com. And it's just is where you can listen to episodes and some info about us. 
It's more for people that don't listen to the podcast, if I'm going to be honest. But if you want to check it out, my wife made a pretty dope website for us that I think is beautiful and effective. And as always, uh, go ahead and buy yourself a Lodge pan scraper for your kitchen. Okay, it'll save you a lot of time on dishes. Check out How To With John Wilson, both seasons on HBO. I'm also very excited about uh, the rehearsal Nathan Fielder's new show. Have you heard? Oh, that? I just saw, I saw the trailer dropped yesterday. I have not watched it. It looks amazing. Good. Check out I How To with John Fielder. Wilson. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But until then, I think we are done. Change the channel. Pew. Brought to you by Lack of Hustle Media.